Today we will be discussing divorce, domestic violence, and narcissism. This presentation is intended to provide general information on the topic of divorce, domestic violence, and narcissism, and should not be construed as legal and or clinical advice. Our panelists will be discussing the following topics. What is domestic violence? What is narcissism? Screening for domestic violence and asking the right questions. The dark side of Zoom divorce, DV and risks to vulnerable spouses. Managing DV files, referrals, timing, and communication. Communication post-separation and power imbalances. Parenting plans, restraining orders, counselors and therapists, and technology. And there'll also be a dedicated Q&A segment at the end of the webinar. For those of you in the legal community, this program has been accredited by the Law Society of Ontario and does contain one hour of professionalism content. So you can claim those through your LSO portal. It's my pleasure to introduce today's hosts, Michelle Mulchin, Nicole Harrison, Kelly Lorenko, and Russell Alexander. Michelle has been practicing family law for over 10 years, specializing in divorce, custody access, property division, child and spousal support, and family responsibility office enforcement matters. Her focus is on creating comprehensive, creative resolutions to family law matters, and Michelle excels at helping clients deal with complex financial issues that arise as a result of separation. Next, we have Nicole, and Nicole joined Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers in 2022 as a legal assistant and social service worker. She holds two honors diplomas and Durham, from Durham College as a social service worker and in community services and child studies. In addition, she is also a volunteer at the Durham Rape Crisis Center, where she supports survivors of sexual assault. Integrating social work and family law is important to her in order to offer a holistic approach to her clients and foster their emotional well-being throughout the course of their family law matters. Next, we have Kelly, and Kelly is a social worker and intake specialist at our firm. She graduated from Ryerson University with a Bachelor of Social Work degree and has over 15 years of experience in the social services field in a variety of settings. She worked as an intake worker for a ch children's mental health agency and additionally as a supervised access facilitator. She enjoys listening to and supporting the people that she works with to help them identify and reach their goals. So we have Russell and Russell is the founder and senior partner of Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. And with over 20 years of experience, Russell uses his knowledge and expertise in collaborative family law with a client focused approach by creating unique solutions for each of his clients. So now that you know a little bit more about our panel and what we'll be discussing over the next hour, I'm going to pass things over to Russell to get started with the presentation. All right, thank you so much for those kind words. All right, so uh, tell us a little bit about yourself as poll number one. Uh, we're gonna do interactive polls throughout this uh, presentation. So please participate. We'll give you a few minutes to get your answers in. Please give us your feedback. It helps us make this program better including uh, suggested topics for future events. Um, so let's find out where our audience is um, coming, coming from today. Uh, lawyer professional, 54%, um, practicing family law. A lawyer professional in another area of law, 22%. Professional in another area of field, 11, uh, a student, two students today. Uh, people going through separation or divorce, helping a loved one. Another, you can put it in the box. So almost 70%, 80% of professionals today, Michelle. Wow, that's, that's a great turnout. Thank you everyone for coming. And uh, 
don't be like one very well loved but very well known member of our uh, firm who always waits until the very last minute to put your CPD in. You can actually uh, go ahead and put it in now. <laughs> Good point. Um, so let's let's get right into it. Uh, when we say DV, we're talking about domestic violence. Uh, Nicole, can you help us out here with what our definition is? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you everyone for joining today. We do really appreciate it. Uh, domestic violence is a very important topic. Um, so in order to talk about domestic violence and divorce in the legal community, um, we'd like to just start with going over the definition. So intimate partner violence, also called domestic violence, refers to abuse and violence directed by one partner to the other. It can be in current or former intimate relationships, and it's about behavior that's specifically designed to control and dominate the other partner. Um, there are different forms of domestic violence, which include physical, psychological, sexual, emotional, financial, verbal, social, and intimidation. It's important to note that it can occur uh, between current as well as former partners, um, as well as ongoing sexual partners. And the research does show that it is predominantly perpetrated by men against women, um, but I do want to acknowledge that anyone can be a victim or a perpetrator of intimate partner violence. It also occurs amongst uh, heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, transgender individuals and couples, and it can occur across uh, all socioeconomic backgrounds, cultures, races, education, uh, and religious backgrounds. Um, and I really think that's important to bear in mind when we are meeting with clients, because I know that our clients bring a whole variety in regards to their backgrounds and experiences. Um, there are three primary categories of domestic violence. I'm just gonna outline them briefly. The first is minor isolated violence, followed by victim resistance. And the third one is controlling coercive violence, which is usually the one that most people are familiar with, uh, as that's the type that you might see in movies or in the media. So minor isolated violence, uh, it really refers to violence that's not associated with a pattern. So it's not repetitive. It typically doesn't cause lingering harm or fear. Um, intimate partners who report this form of domestic violence don't categorize their intimate partnership as abusive. Um, it typically occurs at the time of separation. And an example of minor isolated violence is the mutual shoving um, and pushing during like a heated conflict. So the behavior is not repeated. It's not part of a pattern. Um, and it doesn't reflect or produce one partner's control over the other. Resistance violence uh, can happen when violence is used as a response to a perceived threat. Um, often in the area of divorce and family law, we can see it when sometimes people are attempting to escape a relationship. And it's violence that's associated with resisting the continuance of violence. Uh, coercion, control. So for example, uh, the use of violence to stand up to the dominant aggressor in the relationship. Lastly is coercive controlling violence. Uh, and what I wanna emphasize here is that it's a pattern. Um, and that's really where people need to be concerned if we are hearing an indication of this within relationships. Coercive domestic violence can involve a pattern of emotional, financial, or psychological monitoring. Uh, domination, intimidation, coercion, or control with or without physical or sexual violence. So it's important that family law practitioners ask questions about domestic violence um, because often you are the first point of contact for survivors. 
Um, it's important for you to identify if there was or is a risk identified with the client for intimate partner violence. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, great summary, Nicole. The uh, Let's go to a poll question. So our second poll question, which of the above character traits are associated with narcissistic personality disorder? And uh, go a little bit off script here. I, I find, Michelle, it's incredible the resources uh, some clients will pay to try to prove or demonstrate their other partner is a narcissist. And they think it's important for the judge to get that conclusion. Um, but what happens at the end, right? It, there's still a case that needs to be settled. And you're spending all these resources. Um, you know, it's almost like a vindication for some people to demonstrate, you know, this is a bad person we're dealing with. What's your experience been? I agree. I think that a lot of clients, um, unfortunately, come in thinking that this is going to be like Matlock or one of those television shows where a judge stands up and says, you know, you, sir, are a narcissist and a horrible person and, you know, you shouldn't be here and whatever it is. Unfortunately, it just doesn't happen. A judge's role is not really to make clinical diagnoses. It's more to decide what happens with this family, whether they're children, um, uh, parenting concerns, division of property, things like that. I think it is important as lawyers and even sometimes for judges to understand that there may be these issues so that they can take that into consideration when having appearances, when you know dealing with some of these difficult personalities. But in the end, at the end of the day, the more important thing is the outcome of the case. I agree. And it's not like there's, there's, the judge makes this finding. Uh, they still have to assess best interests, what kind of relationship this person's going to have with their children going forward. All that analysis still has to continue. But uh, let's see what our audience is thinking here in terms of um, characteristic traits. Um, exaggerate, exaggerated sense of self self four percent sense of entitlement two percent um one percent on, on uh, questioning compliance with expectations i don't think all our percentages add up to 100 percent here <laughs> yeah, somebody isn't doing the math right <laughs> what do you think correct answer here Michelle? oh it does all, all of the above no it does it does so it does add up to 100 percent oh, <laughs> I must have, uh, I should have scrolled down. What were some of the other percentages? Was there a majority? Uh, yep. Oh, it just scroll down. You haven't scrolled down to the, the correct answer. All right. So it's all of the above at all 90%. Of the <laughs> we got a sophisticated audience here. There's no, um, you can't get one by on these people. You can't so trick okay, these people. We're going to have to improve our poll questions. Right. Well, no, it's it's great. It's so nice to know because sometimes we get the majority of people who are self-represented or parties. Uh, so it is nice to know the level of um, of the attendees so we can try to moderate our questions, moderate our, our um, discussions around that. And the other that was in the, the first poll was a retired lawyer. So um, just to get that out and there. He, he or she came back. Congratulations. Oh, I don't know that I would be spending my retirement uh listening to a bunch of lawyers <laughs> michelle come on you're you're supposed to be encouraging people to listen right. yes we encourage you to join us and it's it's you know you have to make a little bit of light in such a horrible topic oh, that yeah. we're talking about today 
really tough subject it affects so many families in Ontario. So we talked about domestic violence. Uh, let's sort of uh, define narcissism. Um, Kelly, you want to take a crack at this one? Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Russ. So on the next slide, we will see a clinical description of narcissistic personality disorder. Um, so as you see, it's defined as a mental condition in which people have an inflated sense of their own importance, a deep need for excessive attention and admiration, troubled relationships, and a lack of empathy for others. But behind the mask of extreme confidence lies a fragile self-esteem that is vulnerable to the latest criticism. Right. So now we know, you know, sort of the term we're using when we do our presentation today. Let's go back to our audience and test them once again with another poll. What are the causes of narcissistic personality disorder? Give everybody a few moments. Michelle, I'm going to throw a question at you that came in from our audience member. Sure. Ahead of time. Well, um, we give everybody a chance to answer. So long-term relationship with allegations of domestic violence. Um, <clears throat> how can couples navigate a reasonable decision or settlement when criminal and family lawyers are now involved and no contact orders are in place? We're going to dive into this sort of these issues a little bit deeper, but what's, uh, what's your recommendation in a fact scenario like this, Michelle? Wow, that's that's a lot. So firstly, unfortunately, every situation is unique. And I think that you need to look at this particular circumstance to see and make a very creative and unique situation. Um, you know, you can still move ahead with collaborative, whether it is collaborative or litigation, I, I always would recommend a family professional who has um, lots of training in domestic violence. Uh, and working with individuals with a narcissistic personality disorder. Usually that is very helpful um, in guiding both the lawyers and the clients through the process. Um, and in terms of how to actually do it, how to, how to get um, the parties together, I would recommend that we try to do something called shuttle. So either shuttle mediation or shuttle um, meetings, four-way meetings where you can either do this via Zoom or you can do it in person, where if it's via Zoom, you have different rooms, the parties never see each other, um, the professionals, whether it's the lawyers or the lawyers and family professional move from room to room. Or if it's in person, and we've done these before at our office, we'll actually have um, someone at the front door to greet the, the people and stagger it. So have one person come 15 or 20 minutes earlier, put them into a room with their own lawyer, have the other person come and then do it the same way leaving, ensure that there's separate bathrooms, ensure that there's separate um, space, that you're, you're actually physically putting people in different parts of the building. So um, I really also think that before you try to do something like this, that you have a really good team and that the team sit down and come up with a plan that works not just for one party, but for both parties and make sure that everyone's needs are met because you're not gonna get an agreement if you're trying to do this out of court, if one party thinks that they're being prejudiced or one party thinks that they're being targeted. So it's a, it's a balancing act. We're lucky we have three boardrooms in a fairly large footprint, but just to add that you wanna make sure you know the person's being walked to their car after the meeting. Uh, that you know you have a safety plan in place with respect to no contact orders um, you need to take a close look at the order most 
recognizance of bail or judicial interim releases have a provision saying contact can occur through counsel uh, for the purposes of arranging um, family matters. So that could be the parenting schedule, perhaps support, perhaps property, whatever the issue is. And those can be varied and amended, but we're going to take a look at that in a few minutes. So thank you so much uh, for your input, Michelle. Let's see what our audience is thinking. All right, causes, environment, 5%, uh, genetics, zero, all of the above, 51%, still unknown, 40%. What do you think here, Michelle? Is there a correct answer? Sorry, you got me while I was drinking. Uh, I yeah, was waiting, so I, I was waiting for you to take it. You were, you were doing it, weren't you? I, uh, so I believe the answer is it is still unknown. I think that we, uh, and you can just double check if I'm correct, Russ. Uh, I think that we have guesses and educated guesses, but it, there's still no definitive answer as to what causes someone to have a narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, the answer I've written down Although the cause of narcissistic personality disorder isn't known, some research thinks that it's biological, biologically vulnerable children, parenting cells that are overprotected or, or neglectful may have an impact. Genetics and neurobiology may also play a role in development of narcissistic personality disorder. So I think you're right. Probably yeah. all of the above, and we're still learning more. I think so. All right. So let's go into screening and asking the right questions. It is important to do some screening to make sure that um, that we are detecting and picking up on if there are any safety um, concerns that are um, required. Um, we want to be able to match our services and interventions to the client's safety needs. Um, so as Michelle mentioned, the shuttle mediation um, is a really good opportunity to still be able to practice that collaborative um, matter, but not um, have to be sitting in the same room as, as someone who has been abusing. Um, so there are some screening tools that are available to assist with the screening process. Um, one of the more uh, well-known uh, tools is the MASIC, which stands for the Mediator's Assessment of Safety Concerns and, sorry, Issues and Concerns. Um, these tools help guide that conversation to um, screen for uh, any domestic violence issues. They are pretty direct questions, um, but it is important that those questions are asked. Um, and it's also important to understand that screening isn't just done at the intake um, part of your involvement. Um, it is something that should be done ongoing throughout your working relationship with a client. Um, oftentimes when um, they're first meeting you, they're not going to necessarily feel comfortable disclosing that information. Some of that might come through once they've established that relationship with you and feel comfortable. Um, so you always want to have in the back of your mind some um, screening uh, questions and tools to have available to kind of delve a little bit deeper if you suspect that there are some domestic violence issues. Let's get into a poll question, see what our audience thinks. Who are most affected by a, a narcissistic personality disorder? And I'm reading the questions and comments as they come in. Thank you so much. Here's one for you uh, that came in. Michelle, what do you do if your client, whom you believe is the narcissist? Been there. Um, you know, we are so fortunate at our office. We have such an amazing team. One of the things that I like to do is um, I like to refer my own clients to therapists. I am not a um, qualified person to make a judgment or uh, a diagnosis, but we have a wonderful team, some of whom are here with us today, who, um, and you know, sometimes these things are covered by benefits. 
So it sometimes helps to have a third party independently who is able to make that diagnosis, speak to that client, and maybe give him or her some insight into their own behavior and how it is affecting the uh, case, the children, the other party, and a decision. Thank you so much. One more quick one. How daft are judges at recognizing a narcissist's lies and manipulations? Um, usually, if you have a narcissistic client or a party on the other side, it's usually reflected in the tone of the pleadings and the demeanor of the person in the courtroom uh, quite often. Um, these personality characteristics, uh, a lot of them display themselves physically in many cases. But what, what would your take on this one be, Michelle? Um, I think that while judges have training, they also have to be careful because a judge's role is not, again, to make a medical diagnosis, it's to come to a decision on the case. And you probably, as a judge, and I don't want to speak for judges, but you probably want to make sure that your decision is not based on a diagnosis that you're not able to make, but instead on the facts of the case. And so I think as a judge, you'd probably want to stay away from, you may, you may understand it yourself and you may, you may recognize the symptoms, but in your decision, you want to be neutral so that um, in the end, we want consistency and we want a final decision for our clients. We don't want this getting appealed because a judge made a, a comment that irritated the other side. But they can certainly case managed files, right? And it oh, the narcissism may not be the basis of it, but we see these files where people want to burn everything to the ground or they're not complying with the rules or not, they're not um, being civil and polite during court hearings. Certainly judges have the ability to maintain decorum and control the case from start to finish. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's whether there's a narcissistic personality disorder or a whole host of other issues that we right. may encounter. All right. That could just be one of many factors playing into it. Let's see what our audience is thinking. 55% um, men, 36% women, all genders equally at risk, 60%. I think the data says that men are affected more than women or males more than females with respect to this particular issue. But thank you everybody for participating. Okay, the dark side of Zoom divorce, domestic violence and vulnerable persons. We've been living this experience for three years. We're starting to swing out of the pandemic. We're slowly starting in-person hearings. Not every jurisdiction is uh, back to in-person. And I think a lot of the cases are being grandfathered who started remote, finished remote. But what do we meet, What do we need to be mindful of here, Michelle? Wow, I think I can spend the whole hour talking just about this. I think guys. we have spent a whole hour <laughs> talking about the Zoom divorce. It, we actually, yeah, we have a book and we talk about Zoom divorce for an hour, but this is just sort of one slice of that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think the overarching issue that we have to be cognizant of as professionals is, you know, first of all, is is the violence. It's, um, as we all know, the first couple of weeks after a separation are the most critical and are um, probably the most um, scary for victims of domestic violence. And as professionals, we need to have plans in place. So actually just yesterday when we were doing our, um, 
when we were doing our prep work for this, I was a little bit late because I had a new client. And so I often will do prep with them, which isn't actually family law, but it's more of a, how do we protect you? How do we protect the children? How do we do this in a respectful manner? Uh, so it could be things like um, planning how to tell someone that you're separating, um, you know, who is in the home or if it does take place in the home, um, timing, you know, are we doing this while the children are at school or, you know, are they in the house or are they with somebody else? Uh, what's the plan? What happens if that individual um, uh, gets upset? So I think that, you know, as as professionals, we see it, we see it all. And I hope that you never have to deal with a situation where one of your clients has either experienced domestic violence or has been charged because of a domestic violence um, um, assault after a separation. But the most important thing for us is to plan, 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 let people know ask the questions, do it um, in a very respectful manner. And um, I don't know if you all saw it, and I don't think we, we actually have the details yet, but just as recently as this weekend, we had a really horrific case in the Durham region where there was um, a suspected murder-suicide, a um, person and their child were found dead in a home. So I know that, um, Actually, uh, Nafisa, who is our managing partner, she works at Luke's Place. And do you know the story of Luke's Place for us? It was a local judge who ordered, um, didn't believe, I think it was mom, ordered unsupervised access and uh, father killed the child during the access visit. Just terrible case. Absolutely horrible. That's the story, right? Uh, yeah, so I, I don't know... Um, about the the judge so much, but I do know that it was a three and a half little uh, little boy who was um, killed by his father during um, an, uh, his first unsupervised access exchange. And then uh, I'm sure many of you in this community know about uh, little Kira Kagan, um, and uh, I've had the pleasure of meeting her mom and all the great work that her mom is doing. Her mom is actually a doctor, and if you've ever had the time to go and read that story and read the detailed kind of synopsis or hear Jennifer speak about um, her experience, it's really heartbreaking because um, she's a doctor, she is, she has the financial, emotional resources to be able to um, carry on a case. Thank you, Shannon. Um, she actually ended up um, uh, marrying a family lawyer and regardless of all of that, she had a really great team. There were uh, CAS, I'm sorry, it wasn't CAS, it was um, JCAS, I believe, was involved. And despite that, unfortunately, um, again, no one knows, but it was a suspected murder-suicide between little Kira and her dad. So um, screen, screen often, screen um, at the start, ask the questions, do it in a respectful manner. and. If you don't feel comfortable with screening, um, you can, there are social workers who will do screening, but you really should get comfortable and, you know, do as many courses as you can. I've done a number. I'm going to continue to do them because the statistics, the information, it's, you know, it comes out, it, it, there's new stuff coming out all the time and there's so much to learn. 
Yeah, and it's really the role of the lawyer to step in and, and try to ensure our client's safety at every step, whether it's a restraining order, identifying these facts and issues for the judge. Part of our Zoom divorce series, we give some other examples where the uh, person was testifying in a criminal trial about her partner who had assaulted her and he was actually in her home while she was doing the video testimony. I think the prosecutor picked up on it, sent, it was a US case, sent the sheriff over and uh, the person was arrested in the home during the trial online. Really scary um, in terms of, you know, these, these are the dark sides of Zoom divorce that we don't see, right? The, fortunately, that there's a video of that. We've got a link to it in our other presentation. But even, um, you know, during the pandemic, we'd have a lot of times both spouses doing their court hearing within the same premises because of restrictions. So one person would go to their car, the other person would be in the home just to try to get that physical distance. But very, very uh, difficult situation for a lot of families. Thank you for that, Michelle. Okay, I think we're going to go to our next poll question. When does narcissistic personality disorder usually begin? Um, so we'll give everybody a moment. We've got lots of questions and comments coming in through the Q&A. Thank you so much. Um, Here's another question. Sorry, I keep throwing these at you, Michelle, but uh, this came in. That's ahead okay. Of time. Uh, what are some of the barriers that survivors may face when uh, reporting domestic violence to a lawyer? So many, so many. I, I, I'm sorry to say, um, first of all, people not leaving them or um, not taking the case seriously. Um, lawyers who aren't experienced and and here's the thing guys you know there there has to be a first and there has to be a first file so as long as you're open and willing to learn and you're open and willing to do that research do the courses learn from the people who who know best um i think that would be helpful uh there's also the how do i say this nicely there is also the concern that the judiciary does not take your claim seriously. I had one recently where I had some serious concerns about one of the judge's recommendations. And as a lawyer, your job is to try to convince the judge in any way possible that these need to be taken seriously and, and we need to have some safety protocols. Um, so those are, I mean, there's so many though. Cost is another barrier a lot of the times um, narcissistic personality disorders create massive costs for people who are going through this system because it's part of the control. They're still um, in this thing where they want to control that individual. And since they can't do it in person anymore, they're not there, you know, in the home. The litigation do it. itself becomes a form of abuse, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, motion after motion, vexatious appeals not complying with court orders, the, the list is endless, right? Yeah. Thank you for that, um, Michelle. Just one final point, you know, part of our Divorce Act series, we talked about um, lawyers who are either, you know, peacemakers or, or uh, firefighters versus this arsonist or warrior mindset of, you know, what many lawyers or people think their lawyers should be doing. 
But when it comes to domestic violence and screening and what you're talking about, Michelle, is you really do need to be a warrior for your client because he or she cannot. And you really do need to go the extra step to protect them. Uh, let's see what our audience thinks. Um, toddler age, 13%. School age, 24%. Teenage years, 32%. Early adulthood, 25%. Later adulthood, uh, 5%. The answer for this one, what do we got, Michelle? Uh, I think it, it begins in teens uh, and often starts in early adulthood. Now, you can have some children who um, show signs, and believe me, I got lots of children and <laughs> lots of different age groups, um, but children are, by definition, self-interested, right? They don't know enough about the world to be right. able to really um, start to comprehend their actions versus other people. So you you want to take that with a grain of salt. I think teenage into adult um, years, early adult years, are where they, the clinical studies find that you can really have a diagnosis. All right. Our audience hit it pretty much nail on the head with that one. All right. So managing domestic violence files, um, referrals, timing, and communication. Uh, what tips and information does our audience need to know, Michelle? Uh, so I think it comes, it starts at the very first interview. So um, I have a file from, oh gosh, seven or eight years ago where um, the female came in and um, she came with her brother and her sister-in-law, sorry, it was her sister and her brother-in-law. And uh, she was really concerned. They had convinced her after years and years to come in, but she wanted to do it, but was very, very scared about the outcome. And so part of that was planning how we were going to um, tell this person. And it didn't happen the next day. Often you'll get a client within a day or two, you send out a letter. In this case, it was a very different situation. She had um, kids who were in their teens and she came up with a plan. So it was her decision that she wanted to move out of the home. And so she actually, with the help of her sister and brother-in-law, was able to get an apartment, move some clothing, uh, do some things like that. And then we safety planned how she was actually going to tell her ex-husband. So down to time of day, you know, the kids were, it was um, after after work because unfortunately he worked and she worked it was after work but the kids weren't going to be at home and you know their her brother-in-law was going to be in the house but not in the same room because we were worried that if the brother-in-law were in the same room that could create um issues that we would not want to happen um you know there were family members on standby there was not only is it the safety planning but there's some financial planning as well what's going to happen in this case this person did not have their own bank account and did not have the funds to be able to get some of these things on her own so you needed some family assistance so this isn't really you know, this isn't really family law, but it's something that is so important because you can imagine if we hadn't taken this time and it went perfectly well, exactly to plan, he had seen it coming, um, but because of the safety plan in place, the blow up didn't happen that we were worried about. 
and uh, she was able to leave the home safely and have a couple days away. And actually that one ended up in a separation agreement and, and it ended really well. But the way these things start usually set the tone. How many times do you get a call? We got one this weekend where, you know, someone from your team or someone from your office says, things are happening. We need a lawyer. We need an urgent motion. We need all hands on deck. Yeah. Um, if you are doing your job correctly, you don't actually get to that point because you've safety planned enough that the police don't have to be called and um, we're able to safely and responsibly have that. What, what did they call it? The conscious uncoupling? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that that's uh, kind of the safety planning on it. Uh, you know, um, like Kelly Spoltro and uh, that's that's who it was. It was Glenn Paltrow and, and the guy from that that band. What is it? They'll come to me. It's not Green Day. It's the other one. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody will have it. Um, of course, having your safety assessments, doing all that will help. But uh, you know, if someone's coming in saying there are these domestic violence concerns, whether or not there are, I think it's important to treat it. Ah, Coldplay. Thank you, Shannon. Uh, I was Chris Martin. So whether or not there are real safety concerns is not really for you to judge. It's more for you to create that situation where your client feels comfortable and your client has a team, right? So it's not just me, it's my clerk, it's my intake team, it's a therapist could be involved, uh, family members can be involved. There's there's a whole lot of people. Uh, timing, go ahead. The uh, I was just gonna say, um... Shannon's also a DJ, right? See, so she came up with that. <laughs> <Is she? laughs> thank, I want to thank the audience for these questions. I'm trying to monitor them as they come in, and they're fantastic. Here's one that's sort of on point, though. Michelle, um, as a lawyer, what do you do when your client's still living in the home and it's becoming unbearable? And we get this all the time, right? And there could be some prejudice if you say just leave and the kids are there and you're creating a new status quo. You don't want conflict occurring at the front door. We don't want somebody ending up dead, right? Like that we read about too frequently. Uh, so what do you, what do you do? It is unfortunately a fact specific. So I've had cases where there are nesting arrangements where we create a situation where the kids stay in the home and the parents you know, kind of come and go. So there's only one parent at a time, but that unfortunately requires the other parties having a place to go. And you can't simply get one rental unit and have whoever is not parenting in that rental unit because then it still creates a place where there can be conflict in that rental unit. So usually it's where there's extended family or some sort of friend um, support group that they could do that. Um, you know, you could have uh, situations where you um, try to come up with an interim short-term plan where you have one party move out, but make it clear in whatever agreement or consent that you're doing that it's, you know, not creating a new status quo. It is simply to halt the conflict and allow the parties to make a resolution. This plan's going to get us to the next seven days, right? Until you exactly. get that's it and we can have a, uh, a meaningful meeting that's probably the most effective because the test for urgency and or hardship is a strict a strict one and it's usually going to require at some point some notice right you may get an ex you may or may not get the ex parte order but your client may not have the evidence but if it's the risk is that great you need to 
consider that as an option as well, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, it, it is. Um, and, you know, right now we're in trial sittings. Even if you wanted an urgent motion, I don't think we get one before early December when the trial sittings are done. So, you know, lawyers, you also have to be cognizant of what's happening in the courts and, and their availability. But if it's life or death situation, the judge will probably make the order ex parte and then bring you back in a few weeks yes. during the trial sittings. But let's get into parenting plans. That was a great, great tips there, Michelle. Thank you. Thanks uh, so much. Nicole, parenting yeah, plans, you, what should we be considering? Um, so kind of building off of what Michelle was saying, um, creating a parenting plan uh, with the assistance of your counsel or a family professional um, to develop the parenting plan. So a written document that outlines how the parents will raise their children uh, following the separation or divorce. And it can include things like the parenting time schedules, decision-making about health, um, education, religion, extracurriculars, et cetera. So how those decisions are going to be made, it does involve the communication between the parents um, and typically using dispute resolution mechanisms, um, especially in files where there is domestic violence or high conflict. The more detail that you include in the parenting plan, of course, the better. Um, because when the parents know how they're going to go along and, and divide their time with their children, if there is a dispute that comes up, they can refer back to their parenting plan um, and they can uh, kind of see how they agree to resolve the issue. But in terms of creating the parenting plan in a collaborative file, the family professional will meet with the parents and assist with the creation of it. Um, after it's completed, then it would be reviewed by the lawyers and the plan would become part of the separation agreement. Sometimes parents may want to work on their parenting plan on their own. Um, and there's some great online tools which are going to be in the show notes as well that uh, you can look through. But just know that there are family professionals to help with that or they can work it out on their, on their own. Excellent. And communication, post-separation, power imbalances. It helps greatly when there is another lawyer on board who has domestic violence training, because let's look at it from the other perspective. Let's say that I'm the lawyer for the person who's being accused of domestic violence. As a lawyer, I want to take that seriously, and I want to make sure that I'm also counseling my client on how to behave and how not to behave, because the last thing we want is our client calling us from jail saying, hey, the police were called, we got into a bit of an altercation last night, and things have now gone from bad to worse. Or you may want to consult with your client's criminal lawyer. Right? Oh, absolutely, and I do that. They may have their own strategy in terms of how they're going to handle the criminal cases. No, oh, absolutely. And, and vice versa, you know, the language that they put into any eventual consent or undertaking will impact the family law decisions as well. So I think that if you can, having good counsel on both sides will be helpful in working together to come up with a plan that's neutral, but protects everyone. Um, if you're talking about communication between parties afterwards, you know, if possible, if you can have communication, if there is no undertaking, I really like having third party programs. So I know that our family wizard has something called a tone meter that tells people if they are, um, you know, um, being abusive or, or going overboard. We use the BIF method. I always teach my clients brief, informative, um, firm and fair. So all communication, you know, if the other party sends you a rant with 20 pages of 
whatever, you forgot to tie her shoes and there was a stain on her dress, whatever it is. The response is always brief, informative, firm, and fair. So don't, don't engage, don't respond. Um, that's how narcissist personality disorders, they, they engage and they try to kind of get these um, emotions going and, and to get into the conflict. The, the more you can keep apart from that, have just communication about the children, that's great. Talking parents is another great one. It's free, there's a free version of that. Um, but the more important thing about both those programs, and there's a couple more, I think they're in the show notes, is that a third party can go in and read them. So if you are having concerns, and I've actually had a judge put this into an order before, that the judge will be looking at the communications and that usually stops it pretty quickly. Um, coaching is really important. So again, relying on our third parties, our family professionals, our therapists, um, anybody else in that situation. And remember, a family professional does not have to be an agreed upon thing, right? In collaborative, it's a little different. The parties agree to have this family professional on board. Sometimes it is helpful to have a family professional just for your client, um, because whether they are the um, suspected abuser or the person who's um, advising they're being abused, how many of us have spent time basically being therapists to our clients, right? It's well cheaper and we've got professionals who are much more versed in that and who can also bring some different perspectives. And I think we talked about shuttle already, Russ. Yeah, and they can flag issues for counsel that they may not identify. I like that tone meter. I think there's some lawyers I know who would benefit from using that (laughs) that tone meter in their communication. All right, this ties in nicely with restraining orders, and we're just going to pick up our speed a little bit. We're going to talk about criminal court and family court. We have some samples here. Um, So this we saw this a sample criminal court restraining order that we often see, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, pretty standard. The one thing I will say is... um, Something that isn't as standard is that clause, um, except in the presence of or through legal counsel, that's often missed in criminal undertakings. And it's so important because without that clause, it does leave it open to interpretation. Um, I always try to err on the side of caution. So actually, as long as the both parties agree, and, and competent counsel will always agree to this, um, the criminal courts can actually go back and add that language in. The problem is it takes, it takes time. Right, so it's better to get it in the first time. So if you are a family lawyer and unfortunately your client finds themselves in a situation where there is um, some criminal uh, allegations, you wanna make sure that you're getting this language in there so that you can continue negotiations. In the criminal court, and oftentimes Crown Counsel uh, will consent if it's a reasonable amendment to the release conditions. So let's take a look at our family court precedent. Um, what do you think of this one? Yeah, this is this is pretty basic, um, but you can make it as detailed or not as, as you want. So I actually like to include the, you know, even though it says any place that they're known to live or work, I would include including but not limited to this address and maybe their parents' address. I've had people show up at parents or grandparents houses before, Um, you know, tailor it to your specific situation. It may be that, you know, if there's language like that, be careful because if you're doing exchanges at school, 
that could be problematic. So you want to make it very clear that the other party is allowed to pick the children up at school. They're just not allowed to pick them up on every other Monday and every other Wednesday, whatever it is. So, you know, just as detailed as you possibly can to ensure that you're protecting both parties. Yeah, known to have, there's a little bit of wiggle room there, right? Like that's a little bit vague. I would probably nail that down a little bit more with a little bit more detail, you're right. All right, counselors and therapists. Kelly, what do you got? Yes. So um, with all of this material, I'm sure we can all see how it would be very beneficial for people who are going through this um, experiences of domestic violence for them to connect with um, counselors and or therapists. Um, so as the firm social worker, I actually provide individual support to the clients of our firm. Um, you know, oftentimes going through separation, you know, they have a lot of um, concerns about the loss of their relationships, you know, how they can move forward. Um, also the effect it's going to have on the children. Um, so I'm able to meet with uh, clients one-on-one -on -one, um, who are retained with the firm, and I can provide linkage linkages to other resources within the community um, if I feel that they would be uh, beneficial. Um, so like Michelle has already mentioned, uh, Luke's Place is one that um, we highly recommend in the Durham region. Um, also, uh, women's resources in Lindsay. I've heard many wonderful things about that. Um, it is important to discuss with clients uh, confidentiality. Um, so we are bound by confidentiality. However, there are some limits to that. Um, if a client discloses that a child has been exposed to violence, then there is a duty to report. Um, so we are professionally obligated to report that to the Children's Aid Society. Um, it's important to have these conversations um, at the onset of your relationship with a uh, client because you don't want them to be blindsided. Um, you don't want to hurt that professional relationship that you have with them by having to um, disclose information to, to another um, professional. Um, also, when um, family law is an, an issue, there's often um, different professionals that are collaborating together. Um, and it is important for clients to understand that um, we as counselors do not disclose information to outside professionals unless we have the client's written consent. Um, even with my work uh, in the firm, all of the clients that I work with have been assigned a lawyer and I make it very clear to them that I'm not sharing our information from our sessions with the lawyer unless they provide written consent to me that I am able to, uh, to discuss um, some of their concerns with that, uh, with that lawyer. Um, lastly, I know we're, we're short on time, but the last thing I want to just mention, just um, a, a question that we often get asked is about children um, and support for children and um, treatment. So we usually get asked the question, you know, what do I do if my partner or my other party doesn't consent to uh, treatment for my child? And unfortunately, the answer is, is that both parties do have to consent. Um, so most places will not um, provide treatment to a child unless both parents have signed their consent. They don't need to participate in the treatment, but they do have to consent to it. Um, the only exception to this rule is if one parent has full decision-making responsibility for the child. Get a court order dealing with it. Great stuff. Really helpful, Thank Kelly. You. All right. You're going to see the pro at work here. Michelle, one minute or less. <laughs> Technology. Give us the highlights. All right. So number one, emails and passwords change everything. Change it to something that is not, you know, pick a random name, Bugs Bunny 3768, whatever it is. For every single thing that that 
other party may have had access to or even if you don't think they've had access to it i can't tell you how many times and i myself am um terrible at this my husband is my backup so if i lose my pass if i lose my um if i forget my password it goes to my husband right so thankfully we're happily married got a bunch of kids we're good but if we if things change in the future you want to make sure that you have a backup and a password that cannot be hacked because you don't want that person checking um sorry guys i just got an emergency alert um you don't want that person checking into what you're doing with your lawyer safety whatever um ensures your safety so cameras and recordings are not usually used in court but it is very useful to have cameras around your home to know who's attending i've had a, a case where um the opposing party came and was outside someone's home while they were asleep and the only reason they found out was from that ring doorbell wise w-y-z-e is a brand of camera it's i think 50 dollars. you can get it at amazon you can get it at home depot um super cheap always put everything to the cloud don't record things to your devices because you don't want someone coming into the home stealing your computer stealing your laptop and having access to all of that and you losing access to everything good lighting around the home um monitoring systems these are all really important things that you can do how was that russ did oh, i get it in my minute and a half now no, we're going to get um we're going to get uh, third-party communication tips by Nicole in one minute or less. Quick Q&A, <laughs> get everybody back to their offices for one o'clock. So over Thank to you, Nicole. You. Thanks. There are some amazing third-party communication tools that parents can make use of to continue that communication, but in a safe way. Um, our family wizard is absolutely amazing. Um, it does have that controlled communication with the tone meter, as Michelle mentioned. Um, it also has a shared calendar. All the messaging is documented. Um, you can also go over your expenses in there. So if you've paid for something, that would be reflected in the app. Um, there's also an information bank, which shows any of the child's allergies, doctor's appointments, specialists, uh, incidents, immunizations. Um, and everything is recorded. So our family wizard is excellent to maintain that communication between parents. Um, in addition, there is another app called Two Homes, Talking Parents, um, and we'd recommend as well Google Calendar where you can maintain the shared communication, but in a, in a safe way with the third party. Nicole, I forgot to mention, I for narcissistic personality disorders, one of the things they do is they always say, oh, she never told me this. She never told me about exactly. the child appointment. She never told me that there was um, a school play. The great thing with any of these communication tools is you can put it in there and it's their responsibility now. You don't have to remind them the day off or the day before. Um, and it really takes that power and control away when they have to start doing it for themselves. Absolutely. Hour, hour flies by real quick. I told you. And look who's back, our host. <laughs> Over 300 people attended. Just fantastic. Thank you everybody for coming out today. Yes, thank you so much. And we hope a lot of the questions were answered throughout. But one of the questions we have here from the audience is how do I prepare for court dates knowing I will see the person who is abusing me? Who wants to take that one? I can answer. Um, so I, I would say use your support system. So whether or not that's family, um, friends, uh, your lawyer, law clerk, um, and, and as well, like, so at our firm, it would be me. So that is oftentimes um, something that clients come to me about where they have upcoming um, 
appointments or court hearings and they're like, I don't know what to do and I don't know how to, to prepare. And, and so we'll do some role playing of, well, okay, what if you do see the other person? And um, so using your support system, either informally or formally to just kind of process through those emotions and, um, and get through it. And that is one of the advantages of Zoom divorce, right? People can be in the safety and privacy of their home, home with the support group and not have to confront the abuser in a physical setting, perhaps eight or 10 feet away. Back to you, Shannon. I believe that's all the time we have today, but just want to thank all of our panelists again. And thank you so much to our audience for joining us today. If you do have any questions or general comments for our team, please feel free to reach out to me at Shannon at RussellAlexander.com. Just want to thank everyone again, and we hope you all have a wonderful day. Have a good afternoon. Thank you for your time, everyone, today. Thank you.